0: Welcome to the Cloud Architects Podcast, a podcast about cloud, technology, and the people using it.
1: The Cloud Architects Podcast is sponsored by Kemp Technologies. Choose Kemp to optimize your multi-cloud application deployments and simplify multi-cloud application management. A single pane of glass for application delivery, Kemp provides a 360-degree view of your entire application environment and even third-party ADCs download Kemp360 for free today at kemptechnologies.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Cloud Architects podcast. Today, we're taking a slight departure out of our comfort zone, and we're talking about data with the SQL chick, Melissa Coates. Welcome, Melissa.
2: Welcome. Thank you.
1: I'm also here with my co-host, Warren Dutoy. Hello, everyone. And Chris Goosen. Hello. Melissa, do you mind giving us a quick introduction and a biography about yourself? Who is SQL Chick and who is Melissa?
2: <laughs> sure, sure. So first of all, thanks for having me. I am a data architect. So my focus has been historically on data warehousing, data lakes, business intelligence solutions. More recently in the last few years, I've been focusing predominantly on Azure and the last several years, I've been doing consulting work uh, for Blue Granite. And at the beginning of this month, I became self-employed with my own company called Coates Data Strategies. Um, and so I'm, I'm pretty excited about that. And I'm going to be doing a lot of uh, projects and training around Azure and Power BI.
1: Wow, that sounds like a brave new world.
0: Congratulations.
1: I'm, yeah, and congratulations on that. Well done. Thank you.
2: Thank you very much. I'm excited.
1: Now, most of us, including the hosts on the show, are very much infrastructure-minded. And your blog speaks extensively about this thing called the data lake. And doing some reading in that, the choices that you need to make in terms of things called data partitioning, schema choices, and the average guy or girl just says, I have no idea what that means. So, can you start it off? us off with something basic, assuming that most of our listeners understand what a SQL database is and or at least that it's structured data. And data lakes potentially are not. So I'm going to ask you to kick us off by defining what is a data lake and what do you use it
2: for? Sure. So let's say we've got some customer data. And you wanted to load it to SQL Server, like we've been doing for years and years and years and years. Then the choices that you need to make is what's my table structure? Column one has what name and what data type, et cetera. You have to define what that data looks like before we even load it before we can even start querying it. And so the concept of a data lake flips that entirely on its head. And if we think conceptually about the file system on your laptop, we can drop files into your drive and it's completely agnostic to what kind of structure the file has. It doesn't care if it's a CSV or a JSON or a Parquet file, it just stores the file. Now, a data lake is significantly more advanced under the covers than that. But theoretically, it's the exact same thing. Um, It's a high-end system that serves as a data repository. And so the idea is we can store any type of data and IoT and log data tends to be the thing that that people associate most closely with that. And the kinds of data that have distinct uh, varieties and data types and structures that don't necessarily lend themselves as well to a relational database.
3: That's insane. my My head my, my head needs to wrap around it. Look, I think, you know, there's a lot of uh, terms that have popped up with 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 us recently, um, and I've been doing some work around all different sources. Um, going into SQL Data Warehouse or SQL Data Lake, and then you need to make sure that um, your your databases support MPP, which is, what is that, multiple parallel processing of some sort, Um, um, and all that kind of stuff. When choosing the technology, okay, what makes you choose a data lake over a data warehouse. And then also, obviously, taking into account the sources. So you've got all these different applications lying all over the place. I mean, you've got Salesforce, which has got something, and then let's say you wanna plug on Azure Analytics Services, and then you wanna connect that up to Power BI so that you can display some really cool stuff. (laughs) And essentially what's happening is you're aggregating all of those data and you're putting it somewhere. Where do you start? how do you? What do you? How do you choose the different data lake, data warehouse, um, maybe just a s- standard database sitting somewhere? Um, I mean, I don't know if you've got uh, any knowledge around Cosmos DB and the fact that when it comes to Cosmos DB, you sit there and if you partition your stuff incorrectly, it ends up costing you more money because it's not as efficient and all that kind of stuff. So, um, where do you start?
2: <laughs> well, first of all, I will say that data warehousing and relational databases are still as relevant as they've ever been so in this realm there are shades of opinions um, in the industry so my thought process is this we the the first baby step into a data lake is usually something akin to i need to start ingesting some new type of data and i need to start doing it fast And then I'll figure out later what exactly I'm going to do with this data. And Mm -hmm. so, A, it's a good way to say, I need to buy some time while I still keep this data. Um, The other thing sometimes it's an excellent baby step for is, I need to start offloading some data out of my key systems. I need to archive it, but I need it to be an active archive. And I may not query it a lot, but I need it to be available. And so those are those are two of the really most common ways to to get into things. But the way I see it is that a data lake complements your data warehouse, and I use that term very loosely. Um, by data warehouse, I mean your reporting system that consolidates data from more than one system. So, um, you know whatever that means to you here in your organization. And incidentally, to to clarify even a, a tad further, when I use the term data lake, I am using it as a separate thing. Um, typically, it's HDFS, so Hadoop Distributed File System, or at least HDFS compliant under the covers. But it doesn't have to be. It's 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 technology agnostic. If we're being very pure about the definition. Um, so I'm talking about this this separate file system based uh, data storage layer. I have spoken to a couple of customers in the past year. Who have used the term data lake to more refer to their entire data estate. And and, uh, the first time that happened, I was like, oh, now now I know what you mean, because I was very confused uh, for a couple minutes as they were were explaining things to me. So it's it's turning into one of those nebulous terms. Um, But having said that, there's one more point I want to make, and that is um, the idea of reducing our upfront cost or effort to ingest the data means that yes, yeah, schema on read is the way we turn around and access the data, but that should only be a temporary situation. So I think um, in in my opinion, when the data becomes valuable and needed by more than just those hardcore data analysts or data scientists, we want to turn around and put it into some sort of curated data storage solution like your data warehouse, so that the schema is already there, it's friendly for reporting, all those sorts of things. So it may from its lifetime start in a data lake and end up in more of a curated area, which may or may not be technically in the data lake or a data warehouse, but it has a, a, a lifetime as the value um, changes.
3: And one last thing with regards to cost. Obviously, cost is a big thing when it comes to this kind of thing, right? So you, you, you've got your storage costs and you've obviously – business data is, is – um, what's the word? More important now because you can analyze it. You can apply all these models to it. Where does the company draw the line when it comes to how long they're going to keep this kind of stuff? Because it's not a compliance question. So compliance, compliance is, you know, you guys, are, you guys have to keep something for five years, data, uh, you know, all that kind of stuff. When it comes to analytics and the, 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 the data that you get out of it, I mean, where does the company draw the line? When does it stop becoming useful?
2: And that's a tough one. That's that's one of those. Hey, we got to pull out. It depends at least once. Right. (laughs) And so cost on the storage side usually isn't a a huge concern unless we're talking about such massive, staggering data volumes. Um, So the storage cost is is awfully minimal. Um, You've got your 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 compute costs. So whichever data processing engine uh, of choice that you want to run, and, and usually we might even have multiples, that's where the cost component becomes a, a whole lot bigger of a conversation. Um, and then also, of course, if we start moving the data into something like Azure SQL Data Warehouse, you know, of course, then we're talking about another layer of storage costs and, and sure. those processing costs, which isn't cheap. Um, so that's, that's a great big conversation, but you know around that idea of um i I heard someone the other day call it the concept of data hoarding and and while i don't love that term um it's they're not wrong to say that that data lakes kind of end up doing that um there are some companies though that are starting to say this does exponentially increase our risk because you know our data is so valuable and should we really be keeping? Uh, all this stuff indefinitely that that we may or may not need. So, um, so I think it really depends on your industry, um, the sensitivity of the data, um, in addition to things like cost.
0: So, uh, and and that's actually a very good point because I was going to ask my my next question. Or the thing that comes to mind immediately to me is governance and compliance. Right? Those are those are big terms that you know are, are something that a lot of companies are starting to focus on now, especially with GDPR and, and things like that, I mean, surely there has to still be a governance layer uh, around this data. So not only considering the cost, whether it is or isn't a, a factor around storing all of this data, but also whether, in fact, you want to keep it around, right, For because of risk and because of the type of information it may contain.
2: Yeah, 100%. And because a data lake is fundamentally a lot more flexible, right? I mean, we said theoretically, this is folders and files on a file system that you can kind of do whatever uh, whatever you'd like with. You can turn it into a mess very quickly. So it's fundamentally more flexible, which means conversely, we need fundamentally more governance um, And so security is a big deal and data cataloging is a big deal. So if you have people that do need to find the data in this, in this data, lake, how, how do they go about doing that?
1: That takes me on to, um, how do we do that? So you've got data in your data lake and, uh, you, we mentioned uh, schema on read. So we we see, we define the schema based on the data that that is read, right? How do we make sense of that data? And what tools do we use to catalog as well as access the data? Since you said it's just a file system, right? So we've got two problems. We've got how do I catalog and how do I access?
2: Yep. So cataloging is one of those spots uh, in the Microsoft ecosystem that is not super strong these days. So, um, you know, even our newest data lake iteration, which would be Azure Data Lake Storage Gen 2, um, is not compliant with our with our Azure Data Catalog uh, system. Um, so, third party, tools there can can certainly come into play. The other thing that can be a big factor is, well, let's actually expose the data to the broader population in a different way. So through our data warehouse, through something like Power BI, um, and, and by that I mean Power BI datasets or Power BI data flows, um things like that to where um it doesn't fix the lack of a data catalog and having a robust data dictionary and, and lineage and all those sorts of things. But the the tool choice we use to expose the data can maybe at least make the pain of of it a little bit less.
3: Wow. <laughs> you can check Nixel confused. <laughs> <laughs> well I'm that's just why this that's, huge That's risk. why we leave the camera on. <laughs>
1: <laughs> the the risk is I've, I, I want to embrace Azure Data Lake Gen 2 because it's cool and it allows me to do, well, in future, my tiered storage so I can have hot storage and cold storage and fast storage and wobbly storage. So I've got all these cool storage chairs and all these other features. So I know, for example, that I can apply security in a way that I couldn't with Generation 1 and that buys me something. However, I'm trying to find the upside of dumping 100 million CSV files into a structure and not necessarily being able to find something in that structure or make that structure useful without what I'm surmising is a massive additional effort. Or but that's the I reason you
3: have up? a Melissa. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Um, But I think it's going to get better. Microsoft knows that there is a gap here.
1: Would you be able to speak to the third party space so so long? So assuming that one of our listeners is wanting to go down the route of investigating, dumping massive amounts of data in um, Azure Data Lake v2 and wants to investigate the third party space, where do they go?
2: So I'm not extremely well versed there, but... Uh, The company that the uh, product team has been recommending, from what I understand, is called Waterline, and it's not something that I have investigated or looked into, but I know that's the one that I've heard them say um, is at least one of the initial recommendations.
3: What's a large amount of data? Just, like, throw a number out there.
2: So... That's almost like asking what's big data, right? And I love the definition of it's bigger than how you can store it easily or you have some sort of challenge, right? Okay. Because that's different for like a one man shop versus a huge you know global organization that has a sure. whole lot more resources and and skill sets on staff. So um so th- you know there's there's not a number, right?. Um,
3: no, but I, I mean, like, because, you know, I see some companies that they, they, they sit with relational databases of up to four terabytes and, um, you know, they'll be like, okay, well, we're not going to use single instance SQL DB in Azure because of that limitation. Um, so we have to go managed instance because we're getting to eight terabytes. And you're looking at it and you're going, well, that's a really big database. Shouldn't you be shifting the data by then? Um, you know, in some cases.
2: You mean over to like an MPP?
3: Correct, yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, I I mean, ideally, each one of them serve a different function. And again, they all have different um, technologies in the background. I mean, from what I see, you've got different languages in the background as well. So, you know, from what I can see, the Data Lake uses USQL. Um, You know, there's obviously Python and R extensions to that. But, um, you know, a relational, from what I can see, is a relational database should be temporary.
2: Hmm, that's an interesting take.
3: I mean, Cosmos DB as well. And, you know, so when you think about how Cosmos works, it's to get the data quickly. It's not to keep mm. it.
2: Ah, yeah. And and I guess the way I see it, and granted, you know, for me, data warehousing, a lot of times your analytics is all built on you know, historical trends and things like that. So I, I tend to think about it as, oh, I need my history. Um, so I, I think we're coming at it from a, a couple different ways, but there's a couple of things you said that I, I wanna uh, revisit here. And so one of them is the MPP side, um, which of course would only be useful for analytical type mm-hmm. workloads, right? Um, the large queries that do a lot of group buys, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, not your not your uh, OLTP type workloads, but um, one of the really nice things that it does, because we said, hey, a data lake complements your data warehouse, um, is PolyBase can actually reach into the data lake, and you can take one SQL query and basically marry up data that's sitting in the data warehouse with data that's in the data lake. It's not pure schema on read then, because how we're doing that is we define an external table inside of the data warehouse that points to where that location is in the data lake. And it it puts a schema on it. And then of course, if you have files that start to arrive that don't fit that schema, it breaks. So it's, it's you know, it's it's bridging that schema on read with schema on write gap a little bit, but it's a little bit more brittle. Um, the other thing I want to go back to is you made a comment about USQL, mm-hmm. and so um, I I, I want to make sure to to tell you about the current state of that. So um, USQL is the language of Azure Data Lake Analytics, and that was associated very closely with the Azure Data Lake Store Gen One. Um, We haven't seen that product change um, in, gosh, well over a year now. So the general consensus in the lack of Microsoft giving um, public um, roadmap information on this, the general consensus is um, let's not use USQL for any new projects um, until that clarity of its future becomes uh, much more clear publicly. Um, And instead... Um, we we typically look at, at other avenues to get at the data. Um, and, and which one we'd use depends, of course, on what we're doing with it. But things like Azure Databricks, um, that's always kind of the one of the first ones to be mentioned these days. Um, Azure Data Factory, if we're just moving the data, um, uh, certainly Power BI has a, a lot of hooks in there these days. So uh, there's a number of different compute options, but I wanted to make sure to – to revisit that one because um, that's kind of a common misconception. In fact, I just saw a book that's being written um, currently, and there's three draft chapters um, not published yet. You know how they they publish books as they're being written these days. You know, you can kind of see a preview online. Um, sure. There's three chapters devoted to ADLA and USQL, and I was like, oh no!
3: <laughs> see, it's good to know.
0: <laughs> so, so you you mentioned. Um... Azure data lake service v1 or gen one and then uh, sort of Gen 2 um, so does that mean that there is a gen 2 and that we're seeing some continued investment there and and, and sort of what are the, the big differences essentially in the in the two between the two
2: yeah so from the storage side um, Gen 2 is a is a pretty big deal really so if if we have a, a super quick history lesson here regular Azure blob storage is um, object storage and so object storage is very flat. And even if we think, we humans that is, think that we are putting folders in there, they're not real, they're just virtual objects, okay? Azure Data Lake Storage Gen 1 was true hierarchical storage. So folders and files are first class citizens, we can secure them um, and so forth. But For the longest time there, we kind of had this either or, because both systems had advantages and disadvantages, and we'd have to say, well, based on what the customer needs, which one do we choose? So the reason Gen2 is kind of a big deal is that now they've layered on that hierarchical storage right on top of regular Azure storage. Um, And so actually, if you're looking in services now in Azure, um, although, Azure Data Lake Gen 1, you do see it as its own standalone service. Gen 2, you actually don't. What you do is you provision Azure Storage, and as you are um, provisioning it and checking, you know, what kind of redundancy do I want, what's my location, etc. Um, there's a feature called the hierarchical namespace. And if we enable that, that's what, voila, makes it a Gen 2 account. And, what ends up happening there is then we have two endpoints for accessing the data, and I say that with a great big huge asterisk on it right <laughs> now because um, you have to enroll in a in a preview right now. They call it the multi protocol access preview, and they they have a sign up page for it, and so it's public, but they're still whitelisting subscriptions for it. So let's say you get into that preview, and this is where things are headed, right? You have you have two access points. One is the WASB driver, right? So if we've addressed Azure Blob Storage for years, we would have used the WASB driver and the Blob endpoint. Then we also have what they call the ABFS driver, and it uses um, a new DFS endpoint that interacts with what they call the distributed file system. And so the the two endpoints do give us some great flexibility, right? if we need backwards compatibility, or we have a custom app that we don't wanna change, or whatever, we can still use that older endpoint. But it's not gonna understand how to do some of the new um, optimizations, basically, that come through um, the newer endpoint, essentially. And so, um, just as a super quick um, tour of that, um, if we're using that DFS endpoint Things like data pruning happen. So if the data is partitioned well, so if you think of uh, commonly we do maybe uh, directories by year, by month, by day, and I'm only looking for data in the month of September, right, if things are all set up properly, it doesn't have to read the whole Flat storage layer it can go straight to that directory right so we get some huge performance uh, improvements it can handle metadata only operations way better than an object store ever could um, it, so instead of if i'm renaming a file right i don't have to write a new file and then delete the old file gotcha. um, it, it you know things like that or if i'm moving it from one folder to another It's not 10,000 moves and 10,000 deletes, right? Um, And it does atomic operations and and, uh, ACLs. So access control is security kind of stuff at the folder and file level. So I get all these extra things on top of vanilla Azure storage. And I I say that respectfully, right? That we get all the extra stuff that we never had in the data lake uh, gen one. Uh, for free and there's another asterisk that's still coming along because gen two is a young service but my expectation is that uh, by the time it matures uh, we'll kind of have uh, feature parity I think with blob storage and then plus all the hierarchical uh, features as well.
0: Okay well I mean uh, that that sounds very exciting but does that mean if I have a, um, a gen one uh, I, I guess storage account or, or uh, setup at the moment is that is that upgrade path available by just enabling the hierarchical feature, or is that um, is that what I'm understanding?
2: So not yet. Um, okay. The way I understand it, they're they're going to get there. Gotcha. So um, they basically need all of the. all of the so that multi-protocol access that is in preview right now in order to offer a seamless upgrade path they've got to make sure all that stuff is working seamlessly so that if somebody flips that switch right things aren't going to break so it's taking a, a little bit more time um so uh so we will get there at this point right now the the if you wanted to move um, and incidentally, Gen 1 is not going away. There's no need for alarm, so to speak. It's not, it's not marked as deprecated. Um, I imagine at some point in the future it will be, but there's no there's no huge urgency to pick up and move from Gen 1 um, as of right now. Um, the, the easiest thing to do right now is use Azure Data Factory to, uh, move the data from gen one to gen two. Um, there's even a, a way to do that, that it will preserve the ACLs. So that would be the security settings per, per file and folder. So, so it, it, it could take a while, uh, depending on your amount of data, but it's not too horribly painful.
0: Yeah. That, I mean, that's a big deal though, the upgrade path, because I think there are, there are a lot of Azure services and, and, you know, Warren's more of the Azure guy here, but there are a lot of the Azure services that as the new gen- generations of, of product come out, there really isn't an upgrade path. It's, it's a wipe and rebuild or, you know, uh, whatever the, uh, the best terminology for that can be. So uh, it's, it's great to know that it's there is ca- something like It's called like that CICD,
3: coming. you know, <laughs> DevOps. <laughs> you redeploy. That's what, it's what you do now. You, you redeploy from an integration pipeline and you're good to go.
2: Yeah, 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 I know. Um, and If you guys are like me, you have a little bit of a love-hate relationship with this whole idea of minimally viable product, right? We mm. we have to expect that we get things sooner, but it takes them a while to mature and mm. meet our expectations for where it really should be as a service.
3: Yeah, you're right. No, you're right. I mean, But look, the thing is that Azure's gotten a lot better at it. I mean, if you have to look at the classic way they did things and the new resource manager way of doing things, it's it's a lot less disruptive than it used to be. Um, You know, instead of you having to learn a whole new thing, they're just adding a couple of switches here and there as opposed to, you know, completely ruining it. Plus, also, they give you a heads up. I mean, look, when you think about some of the stuff that's been deprecated in Azure, it got deprecated after many, many years in service. So... I think, you know, it's the times we live in. Um, We've got to keep up with Microsoft. True enough. Mm. Um, I wanted to just go back a little bit to, you were talking about the table, uh, the separate table with a schema and when it breaks, is that a data swamp? And if it's not a data swamp, can you tell me about a data swamp and why a data swamp is a bad thing?
2: <laughs> well, so so there's an enormous amount of, of articles online now about data lakes, right? Good and bad and in between. And, and so a data swamp tends to be the term that somebody gives your lake that's turned into a dumping ground oh. and it's turned into a mess. And so fundamentally, if it's poorly organized, um, that's a bad thing because users need to find the data in some way or another and so you know we've got these these um principles that we use to to structure the data lake we use zones um uh, to separate the raw data from the curate data you know even if you call it something different right um and we've got patterns that we follow um to to make it easy to locate the data secure the data etc um but Purposely, because it's also supposed to be a very agile and flexible area, um, there's there's an area of it that we would call sandbox, where there is less governance. Um, a, a hardcore data analyst or a data scientist might be allowed to write files in their area of the sandbox. And if that starts turning into production stuff, that's a bad thing. Um doing too much with your raw data over and over and over without turning around and cleansing it and curating it. Um, may or may not qualify as swampy, right? But it's it's starting to um, maybe take things to where I'm not as comfortable with it. So um, kind of it, it, then it comes, we're back to kind of governance, right? Um, but there's also data quality, right? Um, One of the beauties of a data lake is I can ingest data faster and easier, but that doesn't mean that my data, that I don't still have data quality issues um, and all those sorts of things. So a whole lot of the traditional data management lessons that we've learned over the last years um, still apply just maybe with a slight tweak.
3: Okay, okay, that makes sense. And then, when it comes, okay, and then uh, something that I've also been hearing about, and I actually have no, I mean, what is a data ocean? Because because this this data ocean, right, which is a thing, apparently. Is that like lots of data lakes make a data ocean? Or would that, a lot of data lakes make a data? How big would that be? Or would it make a data dam?
2: (laughs) Uh (laughs) I'm going to have to go look up data ocean because um, I've heard of ponds. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I have okay, not okay. heard of the, I haven't okay. heard of the ocean. So uh, if I had to guess, um, there's there's a couple schools of thought with the data lake, right? And, and one is, do you have one data lake with all of your organizational data in it? Is it your central point uh, for all data? You know, even if it ultimately ends up elsewhere at some point. Yes. Um, yes. So th- that would be my intuitive guess, but I haven't heard that term yet, so I'll have to go look it up.
3: So I found it on Snowflake's website. I was looking, I was looking at Snowflake and they said, uh, Snowflake uh, turns your data lake into a data ocean using S- Snowflake database replication.
2: <laughs> okay. so that yeah. sounds like a free plug to <laughs> <Something>. me <laughs> yeah.
3: <laughs> yeah
2: yeah and and there's and to be fair there's a lot of third party systems that are doing very cool things to take away mm. some of the underlying pain of a data lake right so when I say we have to organize it very very carefully you know if if someone from one of the data virtualization companies was listening to me you know like a Dremio for instance they would say ah but if you're if you're using our product, we take all that away from you. So you know it kind of depends. there's There's these um, there's there's third party software that are doing cool things that you can layer on top of it and make the underpinnings less visible to you. Um, but those are costly. Um, and none of them are in the Microsoft ecosystem, so you know that kind of depends on you know the customer's tolerance for for introducing um, something big like that. Because then you start using it uh, as the access point for uh, the vast majority of your analytics.
3: Got you. Right then, help me understand the SQL check thing.
2: Oh well. <laughs>
3: Sorry, I, you know, I, I told you there was going to be a question from me somewhere along the line.
2: Yeah. <laughs> so I moved to North Carolina uh, almost ten years ago now, and when I made that move, and I said, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna hop into the world of blogging, and I'm gonna get more involved with user groups, etc. And at that time, a lot of people were coming up with cutesy names, and, and a lot of people still do. So I decided I wanted to be a chick. Of some variety, just <laughs> to have a silly, cute name, and and so that's the that's the best I could come up with um, okay. at the time, and and so my my PG thirteen story is a, a my first thought was bi chick, but when I looked it up, a the domain name was still taken, and it was not business intelligence, <laughs> so I quickly realized that no 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 I cannot put bi in my <laughs> Uh, in my name, because of the multiple connotations, and so that's that's kind of where SQL Chick came from.
3: Okay, Don't so go Nothing, that, to, nothing to do with actual chickens, because isn't North Carolina a farming state?
2: Uh, this is true. This is true. And there is a SQL Chicken, um, <laughs> wow. and and Jorge works has worked for Microsoft for many years, but but yes.
3: <laughs> <Jorge>. <laughs> oh
2: yes, and, and for years I don't think he does this anymore, but for years he actually had a rubber chicken that he'd walk around conferences and it was sticking out of the back of his backpack. It was hysterical.
3: He yeah, is kind of like the lobster on the exchange team. Hey guys. Or was it a lobster or a oh, crab?
0: S- squeaky lobster. Yeah, sque- uh. squeaky lobster. <laughs> so
3: <laughs> So
0: um I guess you know, as we as we sort of start winding the, the episode down, um one of the things that we like to kind of ask our guests on the show is, is you know, how did you get into the industry and how did you really become you, right? Because very often, I think everyone, you know, guys and girls listen to the show, um, they listen to, to, to our guests and they think, well, you know, that sounds cool. Sounds like you have a, a great job or what you do is very interesting. And, you know, that might be something that I want to aspire to. So, you know, how did, how did you actually get to where you are and, and sort of what makes you you?
2: Yep. So the short story is when I went to college, um, I had no idea what to major in. So I decided to major in accounting because I said I liked money for, you know, lack of a better reason that <laughs> that really was it. And then I, you know, whiled away being miserable as an accountant for a while. But somebody taught me things like V lookups in Excel and um, importing journal entries into the GL system. And I got my taste of being a little bit techy. So for the next few years, I was your proverbial power user, um, creating access databases and shadow systems, you know, uh, and that by virtue of that and getting in trouble a few times for how I queried source systems that I got access to Oof. back in the day, um, I got to know some IT people. Um, and, and so that was my segue into a, a help desk job for web focus back in the day a 4G L Language and uh, I did some uh, internal training on that, and uh, and that was the job where they said, "Okay, we just bought SQL Server. We need one of these data warehouse things. We're going to send you to a Kimball class where you figure out how to do this." And that was kind of my lucky spot in time where that 100% dictated my future, but I I didn't know it at the time, of course, and so. Um, Back in like the 2005 era, we didn't have nearly as many blogs. Um, But there, but I did learn some things from some early blogs people had and so forth. So that's where my love of community really came from is me being this one person all by myself in the cube, figuring out how to How to do ssis packages and how to create sql tables and and so anyways um i i ended up leaving that uh job after eight years and uh for the last maybe 11 or so i've been doing consulting work up until uh up until my most recent change here to be self-employed but the the consulting work was really all about i want to know how different companies do things and so um so long story short is I love the data architecture side of things. I can do the front end visualization and reports adequately, but my love is let's let's get the data level right. So if somebody was saying, I think that all sounds interesting, I, I think it kind of depends on, well, two things. One, do you want to be a generalist or a specialist, um, which I think these days it's it's Either one is perfectly valid. I've always found it easier to be a generalist, and I don't mean technically easier. It's it's technically harder, um, <laughs> but but easier because what we do in our in our ecosystem of of tools these days uh, in Azure is so broad that I, I get a, a chance to touch uh, everything a little bit. So I think decide on on that, and then you know decide on well, what do you really love to do? Because being a data visualization specialist is perfectly adequate. Um, being a data architecture specialist, being a, a ETL or data integration person, you know, there's all these different entry points um, that someone could take. And I've always thought getting into my side of the world is actually easier to ease your way in than some of the more hardcore developer Um, type of roles where you got to learn, you know, C sharp, for instance, right? Something that's always been much more intimidating to me. Um, I kind of think uh, the entry points on the data side are a little bit, the the bar is lower, I think. But then again, um, you know, I I could be misinterpreting that a little bit.
0: Well, that makes, I mean, that makes absolute sense. Thank you. Um, I, you know, so you, so you mentioned um, your new company, uh, and, you know, what we wanted to do was, you know, give you some time to, you know, plug yourself or plug the company or, um, you know, how can people find you, you know, blog, social media, things like that. Um, so really the floor is yours here if you wanted to, uh, to you know, uh, let us know addresses or things like that.
2: Sure. So my new uh, website is at CoatsDataStrategies.com and that's Coats with an E in it, by the way. But um, so I'm going to be doing three things mainly. Um, one is producing some training. So I'm actually starting with uh, an, a session that I think I'm going to call architecting a data lake in Azure. Um, and I'm going to produce it to where it's available via web-based training as well as in person. So you'll see me uh, in 2020 start to do some pre-cons at different events and that sort of thing. And um, and then of course I could always um, deliver it uh, internal to a company too, if if that made sense. Um, I do a little bit of tech writing here and there, so I've written a couple white papers for Microsoft, that sort of thing. And and then the third arm is consulting. So um, right now, for instance, I've got a, a small project that I'm helping a company with, kind of doing some advisory services, that sort of thing. Um, so those are the, the three legs of my stool, so to speak. Um, and then I've, I, I'm still gonna keep my Amper SQL Chick uh, Twitter account, because uh, that's where I've got my presence built up from the last few years. Um, I do have a, a Twitter account for the company uh, called DS because my regular company name, I got a little too long and wordy, and it wouldn't fit. <laughs> uh, so so there's that as well, uh, where I think I'll keep it just to, you know, a, a minimal amount of chatter, probably.
0: Okay, fair enough. So, actually, one, one just for interest' sake, uh, will you be at Ignite this year?
2: I am not going to Ignite this year, but I hope to get there next year for sure.
0: Okay, awesome, awesome. Well, I, I think with that, um, you know, we're ready to, to wrap up. Thank yeah. you very much Thank for uh, taking the time to talk to us, and, and this has been very insightful for me. Surely, I've been I've been a little quiet this episode because I've just been taking it in. It's definitely been uh, uh, very very insightful for me.
2: Well, I had fun That's chatting, fun. so thanks for thanks for having me, guys. And um, keep up the good work with the podcasts. I've been enjoying them. Thank you. Oh,
0: thank you very much. I think
1: as we get towards your uh, first release, we'd probably want you to come back onto the show and talk to us about the newbie guide to how to design a data lake in Azure.
2: Mm, that sounds like fun.
1: That's a good one. I like it. So with that, thank you so much. Thank
2: you. Thank you. you. Cheers.
3: Bye, everybody. Hey, everyone. Before you go, we just wanted to say thank you for listening. We really enjoy putting this podcast together for you every two weeks. Please visit us at thearchitects.cloud or alternatively drop us a tweet. We'd love to hear what you have to say. At the Cloud arc.